Listen carefully. What can you hear? A bird? Some insects? And maybe even some gibbons in the background. I'm in Borneo, a treasure trove of biodiversity. And just from where I am, I can see a river, trees, shrubs, a butterfly, and insects flying around. But measuring biodiversity is more than what we can see. Hello, I'm Richard Edgar, and the voice you just heard, deep in the Indonesian jungle, was fidelity analyst Minlin Lee, there to see for herself pioneering research into biodiversity, because biodiversity loss is the problem you might not know we have. Almost all the attention on the environment is focused on climate change, on reducing carbon emissions, on limiting the rise in temperature or sea levels. But human action is already having an insidious impact, culling species at an alarming rate, often permanently. With me now to discuss this is Jen Hui Tan, Fidelity International's Global Head of Sustainability, so someone who thinks about this every day. Jen Hui, welcome to you. You're a firm advocate of putting the topic on investors' radar as well, aren't you? Hi, Richard. I think there's a growing realisation that solving the problem of carbon emissions requires us to solve the problem of nature loss, because nature loss is one of the key ways in which we're aggravating the problem of climate change. Well, a little bit earlier today, I met the director of London's Natural History Museum, Dr. Doug Gurr, who leads a team of 300 research scientists focused on what he calls the planetary emergency. You can't fix climate without fixing biodiversity because that's a big part of your solutions to sequestering carbon dioxide. And if you don't fix climate, the impact on biodiversity is the thing that's really going to matter because that's the piece which is existential. And why is it existential? Because we've been here before. We know that life can collapse and we know we're heading potentially for a sixth mass extinction. You've established that this is um, a real and, and pressing issue. Um, but how pressing, how, how urgent is this? It's absolutely urgent. Um, there is still time to fix it, but not much. And if we're not acting within the next five or ten years, there may not be enough time. I mean, if that's not sobering, I don't know what is, Jen. So we know this is important. What's stopping us fixing this problem? So data is a challenge. And I think that means you need to address biodiversity with a degree of pragmatism and to utilize an engagement-led approach that makes, takes advantage of the data that we already have and the analysis that we already conduct. At the same time, I think we want to be exploring new emergent technologies that might help to give us additional information. I think this is the, the, the core problem of how do you measure the richness of biodiversity? How do you approach something like a jungle, which is such an incredibly complex um, system? Or commercially, how do you approach something like a plantation with data that's meaningful enough to track progress? Well, that lack of data is something that your investment colleagues are grappling with. Here's portfolio manager Velislava Dimitrova. 
solving the biodiversity challenge will be the largest investment megatrend in our lifetime. The data we have available to us now around biodiversity is, is insufficient to be able to estimate the risks we're taking within our portfolios. We also have difficulty estimating what impact the company's own operations actually have on the environment, both upstream and down downstream. We do have uh, some asset location data, but it is not necessarily linked to the impact of those assets. We have metrics such as the MSA, mean species abundance, that try to estimate uh, the impact of economic activity on species in certain region, but there are a lot of assumptions built into those numbers. Some people are describing this as a data deficit around biodiversity. So we're going to explore uh, a project that Fidelity has been very closely involved in right from the from the very start. Can you talk about that, um, how it came to be before we, we find out what Minlin has been up to in the jungle in Borneo? Our work on the bioacoustics project started with a collaborative engagement that we did with some other investors around satellite-based deforestation loss. So the idea there was that we would partner with a satellite company that would take images of deforestation occurring in real time, and we would then be able to have engagements with companies with supply chains that were linked to that area. And so that was the beginning of our evidence-based approach to engagement. That gave us an under, uh, a realization that by using these new technologies, and by combining those with the existing understandings of the companies that we could start to develop new ways of measuring the impact of corporate activity. Let's hear now about the uh, pilot project and rejoin our team in Borneo. Our analyst, Minlin Lee, who you heard a little bit earlier, she's been in Indonesia with our producer, Kim Ju Ko. And they've been there to see and hear the fieldwork for themselves. They're introduced by our analyst, Charlotte Apps, who's been leading Fidelity's engagement throughout. What this project is exploring is the potential to create a metric to gauge an understanding of the intactness of biodiversity. And the way that we're doing that is by testing the use case of bioacoustics. So bioacoustics essentially uses sound recordings and then combines that with artificial intelligence. And through that, you can really start to paint a picture of the, the species' richness in a specific location. We co-sponsored a group of scientists to look at the application of bioacoustics. That pilot took place in Indonesia, um, in a palm oil plantation. It was a two-day journey to get to the plantation estate. The first impressions were basically, uh, other than a super long car ride, it's the tranquility, it's the remoteness of the place that struck me. We arrived yesterday evening and it was very nice to finally be able to meet Noreen and Patrick. And today is day one and we are about to set, head over to the site to set up the recorder. We're arriving here at part three. In Borneo, Min Lin and Kim Ju were shown the three key recording areas by Patrick McLean and Noreen Blauka from the Green Praxis team. On each side, we have one recording device which is connected to four microphones, and the microphones uh, allow us uh, to get um, an idea of the soundscape, which is the diversity of sound in a place. So we'll check the distance between microphones. Yeah. 
So these are the high-frequency microphones. So we set up a tripod here. We have one on the bottom and one on the top to bring this up to approximately 1 meter 80 or so. And then we're facing them out. Mm -hmm. We're trying to sort of capture the forest around and then tie them up and we take note of location here. And the other thing that we do each time we set up, one of the things that's important to us is to get an assessment of the density of vegetation immediately around it. Mm -hmm. So we will just take a video here. So we are in control plot three. So what the team did was they set up recorders in the three different types of land use we had. The palm oil plantation, so that's intensive monoculture. We have conservation. So that is land that was once used as intensive monoculture, but has since been let to regrow. And then finally, we have our control plot. Which is an area outside of the plantation and its surrounding area. I think what struck me the most was uh, the sounds of gibbons calling in the distance. Uh, this is the first time I hear like a wild animal calling. It's day two and now we are, you know, in the middle of a secondary forest uh, to head over to check on one of our recorders. Are you okay, Kimju? Obviously, uh, you know, it was humid, it was wet. There's the element of um, insects that, you know, like mosquitoes that, you know, attack you. My camera overheated in the heat and humidity of the jungle. So, yeah, we're going to check if we have recordings uh, from mm. the previous days. And... It seems that everything is there. So mm. here you have the timing of uh, the start of the recordings. It started at 8.49, mm. two days ago. Okay. Um, and we have all these files that have been recorded mm. two minutes every eight minutes. Mm. Um, the, the whole objective is not to identify, you know, which insect it is or which bird it is, right? Rather, the whole mix of it together exactly. to, to determine the extent of biodiversity from the sound waves that we are hearing. Yeah, because mm. uh, we expect a um, healthy environment to mm. be uh, more filled up with sounds because mm. uh, it means that different species are occupying the, the, the different space. Okay. Um, so that could be a good indicator to compare different okay. conservation areas or, mm. or to uh, okay. look at a conservation area over time. So here we'll try just to listen to one vocalization. I don't know what it is. Okay. So it's it's a, a bird. Yeah, descending sound in the middle of the night. Yeah. That's also interesting because um, actually no no one would go to the field at night to record birds. So we have very little information about uh, mm. nocturnal tropical birds. And mm. by setting up recorders like this all the time, then you just uh, you can have access mm. to information that would be very hard to get otherwise. 
so evocative hearing those recordings, isn't it, Jen? That was back in September. All of the recordings were, were back in September. What happened next? So that was a data gathering part of the exercise, all four terabytes worth of data. That was then brought back to France for further analysis. Okay, well, let's uh, rejoin Charlotte now in France to explain the next stage of the data analysis. We met Green Praxis and the team who were doing all of the data analysis. And it was fascinating to see. I had, you know, no real sense of the, the volume of data that they've collected and the complexity of trying to condense that data down into ultimately what we're trying to get as a single metric. You see here, I am pulling in the different plots and I'm pulling in the different dates. So the first thing that I can do here is I can take those 40 days and very quickly, in a matter of a couple of minutes, I can look across the 40 days of the data and it's like, hmm. You know, is it even clean? Does it make any sense? Is it, was it captured properly? Patrick McLean, so who'd that. been on the ground in Borneo, and Ivan Beltran explained the process of cleaning the data, refining the data, and then the indices they've used to be able to gain insight from the sound recordings. At 34 kilohertz, so this is a spectrogram. And a spectrogram is a way to be able to look at audio data where across the bottom we have uh, time, so 0 to 24 hours. And you see that right away here because, in fact, actually there's nothing on the left because we started recording at 10 o'clock in the morning on this particular day. And up is a scale of frequency. And so frequency is the tone, is the pitch of the sound, so low to medium to high. And what's actually a little exceptional here is, is that in this particular case, we actually go all the way up to 128 kilohertz. Mm-hmm. knowing that for humans actually we only hear to about 50 to 20 kilohertz. So we're going way beyond what is audible to humans, but there's a lot of activity in the forest that we can detect that we'll be able to see uh, that happens in areas that we can't hear. So this lets us see it, even though we can't hear it, we can see it. So they've so taken um, academic indexes that are already in existence and layered that on top of the sound recordings to really start to pick out information from, from those recordings. We can, for instance, look at this during dawn, where it's like a time of the day where there are a lot of birds singing, a lot of uh, activity during the day. We can see very clear differences between a conservation and a production plot. As you said, the, the black uh, is silence. Here, we see less silence. There is more like dispersed noise around. It can become because the environment is more open. So there is like more noise becoming from machines, from like wind, from things like this. There is less diversity. This band is basically insect singing. And there is one bird. So that's really, really promising in terms of taking this, this project to the next stage. Charlotte with some promising early results there. Well, we have now got the final report. And Jen, what does it show? So the report shows some clear contrast between the different sites. As you'd expect, the production plot where the palm oil was being intensively cultivated as a monoculture had far lower biodiversity compared to both the conservation and the control plots of land. Specifically in the production plot, the noise that dominated was insect activity and the presence of some bats, which is to be expected, given that palm trees are a desirable habitat for bats, they offer shelter and also abundance of insects as a valuable food source. But then if you look at the other two plots of land, the conservation plot of land, which is the land that has been reforested to a degree, and the control piece of land, which is the land that is outside of the concession, 
you see a much richer form of wildlife, numerous species of birds, of insects, of mammals that can be heard. But I think an important point to note is that although the um, visual spectrograms from the conservation and the control plots look similar, actually there were some notable differences between these two plots. And the control site had a notably higher level of species abundance compared to the conservation plot. And what that highlights to us is that although you can mitigate the loss of biodiversity through a degree of restoration and conservation, it is actually very hard to fully restore nature itself and that our approach should be on protecting the nature as it originally was. From just the audio, just the sounds that are being created by the creatures that are in these different plots, we can work out what the picture is around biodiversity and in short, it's much, much narrow in the plantation. It's not like there's nothing there, but um, far, far fewer species. That's exactly right. I think there's one extra point that we observed, which is the presence of gibbons in both the control and the conservation plots, and their notable absence in the production plot. And that's a very important indicator of the degraded state of agricultural areas, because primates play a vital role in the ecosystem structure, in their function, and in their resilience. Your team engages with, with companies. Um, what do you do with this information? So the first thing I think is to try and prove out further that the results of this study are replicable and that they are scalable and that they can be used across different plots of land, across different territories, across different types of production mechanisms. If that is the case, then what we think you can do is use bioacoustics bio to establish a baseline upon which you can measure biodiversity change over time, and that in turn could potentially inform more sustainable land management practices, given that we do know that conservation does improve the state of biodiversity. And that's something that I picked up with Dr. Gurr, actually, at the Natural History Museum. So I think the financial community investors have a huge part to play. You know, if you think about what's genuinely going to move the needle globally, it typically it's either a regulatory change, and we're seeing some of that through the policymaking framework, the UN, the 30 by 30, or it's how capital gets deployed globally. And that's where the investors really come in. And in a sense, if the investment community, if we can take that sort of, if you like, that sort of assumption that nature is infinite, we can't possibly affect it. And if we can understand that it's not infinite, it's quite limited. And we can start to factor that into our investment decisions. Then you could end up in a situation where you might just nudge where the capital flows. And if at the margins, you can generate the same return, but do it in a way that doesn't overconsume the Earth's natural resources, that can only be positive for biodiversity. And unless we do that, I don't think we'll solve the crisis. Jen, that's a clear call to action for investors. I completely agree with, with, with Dr. Gurr. And I think what is, it, what is explained right now is the power of finance to affect change on a critical topic like nature loss. But I think the reverse is also very true, which is that nature loss presents very clear financial risks to the companies we invest in, both in terms of their impacts, but also increasingly the dependencies of these businesses on nature inputs. Let's hear from somebody who manages money again, Velislava, our colleague, uh, who we heard from a little bit earlier. If we have more data around biodiversity, it will be hugely beneficial in a couple of ways for us. So firstly, we will be able to identify the risks within our portfolios, uh, the risks when uh, we see continuing decline of, of species. And secondly, we will be able to identify those economic activities, but also specific companies with the largest footprint on the environment and therefore initiate engagements with these companies to help accelerate the transition to um, a lower footprint. 
Um, and I firmly believe that with more data, we will be able to invest in a way that we can contribute uh, faster to solving the biodiversity loss challenge. Jen, right at the beginning, we heard about the urgency of this problem. It's a very, very serious one with potentially catastrophic ramifications if we get it wrong. How optimistic are you that we've got the toolkit and the will to make the changes that are necessary? I think what's been clear through this entire discussion is the scale of the challenge that we face and the crisis that looms as present and as real as the climate change challenge. Where I feel encouraged is the amount of work on climate change over the last 20, 30 years has been used to accelerate our understanding of biodiversity loss. So very much the toolkits of climate change is now being rolled out in the same way to address biodiversity. And so that gives me hope that we can tackle this challenge within the timeframes that Dr. Gur talked about. Jen Hui Tan, thank you very much indeed for joining me. You can hear the full interview with Doug Gurr from the Natural History Museum, uh, and it was a fascinating and compelling discussion. I do recommend it. That will be available on the Fidelity Answers channel as well. Now, a lot of people have made this project possible. Thank you to the team at Green Praxis and to Charlotte Apps, Minden Lee, Velislava Dimitrova, Kim Ju Ko, and Jen Hui Tan for their contributions to this podcast and to the project's co-sponsors, Cardano and Nomura Asset Management. The producer is Holly Eastman, with technical production from Connor Bailey. The executive producer is Stephen Gardner, and the editor-in-chief is me. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.